Welcome to Through the Keyhole. I am your humble host, Jeremy Key. On this episode of The Keyhole, it was my distinct privilege to talk to Dr. Brad Berzer, a professor at Hillsdale College, a biographer of men such as J.R.R. Tolkien, Russell Kirk, and Christopher Dawson, among others. He's also the editor of The Imaginative Conservative, an online journal for those who seek the true, the good, and the beautiful in the tradition of Russell Kirk, T.S. Eliot, Edmund Burke, and other leaders of so-called imaginative conservatism. Dr. Berzer and I discuss what imaginative conservatism is, why it's a viable alternative to modern conservatism, what we have to be optimistic about, monarchism, and what happened to the endwives. If you enjoy this episode, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. Please also consider leaving a review wherever you found us. It helps the show reach a wider audience. You can find me on Twitter at Jeremy A. Key and at The Keyhole, both spelled K-E-E. Here's my interview with Dr. Brad Berzer. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to Through the Keyhole. My guest today is someone I've been wanting to talk to for a very long time. He is a professor at Hillsdale College. Uh, His name is Brad Berzer. He's written a number of books um, covering quite a few different topics. Rather than butcher uh, his biography and stuff about him, I thought I would let him explain who he is, what he's about, and then we'll get started. So, Brad, thanks for being hey, on the Jeremy. show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor So to be able to do this. Yeah, I'm like I say, I like we said offline, I've been wanting to do this for, well, I guess, close to a decade now. I've been wanting to have this kind <laughs> well, of conversation. Like we got a hold of each other. <laughs> yeah, That's you know, it's it, it oh. wouldn't have happened if it weren't for Twitter. Imagine that. Oh, my. Yeah, that's hilarious. That's the second time today someone has brought up Twitter. Uh, You know, and I'm not even sure what I think of Twitter. And I usually just am kind of ranting on Twitter. So but uh, I'm glad that sometimes it comes across as something other than a rant. Well, you know, it's it's funny you say that because I all the people I've interviewed so far for the show, I've gotten to know all of them exclusively, exclusively through Twitter. Wow. So, you know, all right. So there's some really good things that come out of Twitter. I, I guess I guess it's kind of just what you make. Yeah. Of it. Um, yeah. I was at the um, I was on the bad end of Twitter uh, about a month ago when I published a piece on Tolkien and woke culture. <laughs> I couldn't. Oh gosh. I, I have to admit, my my 53 year old self was rather blown away by how angry I made some people. Oh gosh. I, I thought my article was just about Tolkien and love, but uh, obviously it was a different kind of love. So. You know, the uh, the modern experiment will not be complete until everything is politicized. So Exactly. I mean, that's how it felt. Um, yeah, but there was a lot of anger. So anyway, but I, I've generally I've been on Twitter for, I think, a decade now. Yeah. And I've generally had good, good, uh, good time on it. But that was that was the low point, uh, to be sure. So anyway, yeah. well, why don't so, we uh, why don't we get started and you sure. just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do yeah. and what your whole thing is. Great. So I, I'm actually, I'm the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College. This is my 22nd year. I just started my 22nd year on Wednesday. In fact, I had two classes this morning. So uh, it's generally what I do. I'm either writing or I'm teaching. And I'm also, I've got seven kids. Um, my wife and I are very active as parents and we try to do, uh, you know, I, 
I definitely, uh, professionally, I'm a professor, but in reality, I'm a father, I think more than anything else. And uh, yeah, it's great. So I'm from Kansas originally. I ended up going to Notre Dame and then I went to Indiana University for grad school. And this position at Hillsdale opened up too long after I finished grad school. So I've been here really my whole professional career in Southern Michigan. So I've had a great time. It's It's a wonderful school. Nice. Yeah, I've, um, I became aware of Hillsdale, I guess, right around the time that I became aware of you. Uh, and it sounded like, it sounded like the kind of place I would have loved to have known about when I was just applying to college. Sure. Yeah, I didn't uh, know about it either when I was that age. Yeah, so, it, yeah. but, but, you know, it, it's one of those things like now that I know about it, if, yeah. if anyone is looking for a place to consider that's maybe, maybe different than what you normally expect from a college but also what you should expect from a college sure. like I, I direct them to Hillsdale because it sounds yeah. it, it seems like it's a great place it, it is and I, I've really enjoyed being here and one of the things I love most I love my colleagues uh, but the students are just exceptional they really care about ideas they debate all the time I, and uh, even this morning in my western heritage class we were talking about kirk's roots of american uh, order and talking about the four cities leading up to philadelphia and mm-hmm. yeah it was great <laughs> so yeah. it's a fun place a place well, that, to take ideas seriously and that's like that's that's what we should be doing so i'm glad yeah. that places like hillsdale exist definitely and I yeah. think that that's a good that's a good segue uh, into kind of what I was hoping to talk to you about today. Sure. So you remind me, what is your role with the imaginative conservative? Oh, so I, I don't have any editorial function right okay. now, uh, but my friend Winston Elliott and I founded it back in 2010. Okay. So we got together in the spring and summer and kind of outlined what we wanted to do. And then we started it in July of 2010. So we just hit 11 years this summer. Uh, but so I'm my, my title, I'm a senior contributor and editor at large, I think is my title, yeah. but I don't actually do anything editorial. Steve Klukowitz does all the actual hard work and he and Winston Elliott do that. So they've done a, they've done a great job. Yeah. So I try to write once a week. So for yeah. a while there, I was writing twice a week, but I, I couldn't keep up with that. But uh, doing once a week has been great. Yeah. So. Yeah. Every, every time I get on, I see that there's a new essay uh, by Brad Berzer and I just think, dude, you got to slow down, man. <laughs> I, I, I've got a dozen tabs open already. I, I don't want to add one more. Thanks, um, Jeremy. But, uh, it's kind of a disease at times. You know, there is a, there is actually a, a disorder called hypergraphia, yeah. which is being obsessed with words, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think that everything in moderation, but um, yeah, that's right. But it's, right. it's, it's easy once you get into that rhythm of just it like is. pounding out the ideas, it's easy to kind of just get it's, swept up by it. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to do it. And yeah. I mean, every once in a while I get exhausted, but yeah, normally things are going pretty well with that. And just the idea that I can write about anything I want to that week is always mm-hmm. very healthy, I think. Yeah. What was it? Uh, I was on it just last night and you're... You're doing uh, what was you're in the middle of a series now, aren't you? Well, I was doing I did two parts on on uh, manufacturing militarism, which is a a great new book. And I got to interview one of the co-authors of it, Mm -hmm. Abby Hall. So, yeah, that was I was uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read that, Jeremy, but that's really that's a must own. It was kind of depressing and eye opening and brilliant all at once. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember propaganda. 
Mm-hmm. I remember States. I remember seeing your tweets about it. Uh, that was how yeah. I became aware of it. And it was like, well, that seems like a timely book to be reading. Well, especially with everything that just happened in Afghanistan. Yeah. Like Talk about timing. I mean, horrible for the people of Afghanistan. Right. <laughs> just yeah. horrible. Horrible. Yeah. Horrible in, in countless ways. I, I, I dread just getting online in, at, at the beginning of the day and just seeing what fresh... I, what fresh horror has has befallen those poor people yes absolutely and then just to see the response of the united states and yeah Yeah. it's not been an uplifting week by any means it's not been and and so that that i think is a good reason to talk about what we're talking about something permanent yes yes exactly so so (laughs) so you write for this website called the imaginative conservative um a real quick anecdote because i think that you'll get a kick out of this so when I was interviewing for uh, my, I was interviewing for a job as a manuscript editor at a in a, a, a medical school here in Dallas, a couple a few years ago, 2017, mm-hmm. and the director of the center, a very, very serious. I, I made him laugh once in the two two years that I worked for him. Just a very serious, very hard nut to crack. So very intimidating guy. He's, he's looking over, he's looking over my resume and he gets to the, to the publication section and he sees all these essays uh, for the imaginative conservative. And he looks at me and he says, the imaginative conservative. I say, yes, sir. Like I'm trying to be like, yeah, confident and positive. He says, isn't that a contradiction of terms? (laughs) And I honestly, I didn't know, like I I wanted to to defend myself. How do you respond to that? Exactly. And so I, I, I kind of just danced around it. Uh, but what <laughs> is imaginative conservative, imaginative conservatism? Yeah. So, you know, it, Winston Elliott came up with the name and we had thrown around a, a number of different possibilities, mm-hmm. but we decided that we wanted imaginative conservative because we wanted it to be kind of a straightforward conservative, but with something that gave it a literary bent. Mm. And so that it wasn't a political kind of conservatism, but more of a philosophical, artistic mm-hmm. conservatism. And the idea of it came endowed with imagination, but it also came from two writers in the early part of the 20th century, Irving Babbitt and Paul Elmer Moore. Both, uh, one was at Harvard, the other was at Princeton, incredible scholars in their own day and age, but they kind of took it for granted that there was no conservatism that was not an imaginative conservatism. So uh, my anecdote's not as good as yours, but there (laughs) there was a moment where, uh, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with him, but the great English conservative Christopher Dawson Mm -hmm. and his friends who were all conservatives, uh, they decided to, to have lunch or dinner I can't remember which but they were having a meal with one of their opponents uh, a group of opponents and they ended up being seated at this hall in Oxford underneath the picture of a number of prominent liberals and they requested to be moved to be placed under the soldiers because they said that only the soldiers had real imagination and these liberals were devoid of (laughs) that's good (laughs) and you know it is funny i mean we often because we associate art so much with the left now we we typically i mean we think of them as one in the same but for most of history art was about conserving what had come before so there was a a natural conservative tendency i think among artists uh, historically very different from our modern abstract kind of art and our ideological kind of art 
Right. But that's a that's a pretty new in Western history. That's a pretty new phenomenon to have art being mixed with that. So uh, art's traditionally been a very conservative thing, trying to conserve the folk tales, trying to conserve the mythologies, trying to conserve the mores and norms of a people. And that's what we wanted to, to really focus on. But yeah. we didn't want we didn't want to be just another kind of form of political conservatism. We didn't want to be a neocon group or a libertarian group or anything else. We really wanted to be something separate from that. So we thought imaginative worked. And, you know, it's, it's funny, Jeremy, I don't know how long you want me to go on about this, but as long uh, as you want. We, can, we can go back to Plato and talk about the role of imagination. I mean, there's just uh, imagination has been seen in the classical world all the way up to the present imagination was always that expression of the soul so rationality of the mind the passions of the stomach but the soul our aristocratic part was always that imaginative part and we even get that in scripture where of mm -hmm. course jesus is the the image that it is shown in our souls and we magnify it as mary says right my soul yeah. doth magnify the lord I mean, we we have that idea of the image being placed within us and us carrying the imago day and so forth so that role of imagination you know john 1 9 every every man is enlightened by this right the light that lighteth up every man yeah. so you know some beautiful scriptural things but yeah that's that's where it's coming from jeremy so we thought we wanted to be conservative kind of just straight mainline conservative in the Kirkian sense, mm -hmm. but we didn't want to be labeled paleocon or neocon or libertarian or anything like that. So we right. thought imaginative and it, it's, it's worked well. I mean, I'm, I'm always amazed. Um, and you had very kind things to say. I'm amazed when I'll go to say a Liberty fund conference or some convention and people will come up to me and say, Oh, you know, imaginative conservative has really shaped the way I've thought about conservatism oh, yeah. and especially people your age. Mm -hmm. uh, there, you know, there's a, a nice cohort over those 11 years where people have been drawn to that and uh, not ideological, ideological at all, but yeah. really just kind of open to a variety of ideas. And I, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, well, then I'll I'll pay you a further compliment because when um, how I be how I became aware of the imaginative conservative and just the whole idea of imaginative conservatism, uh, I was working, I was working in a public policy outfit, uh, state public policy in Austin, Texas, and sure. and I had a um, I had I made a friend with one of the interns, and she was. Uh, she was a Texan as well, so obviously we had that in common. But, yep. You know, we had the same political ideas. She was an undergraduate at Yale at the time, and she was uh, I'm trying to remember. She was it, she was a member of the Federalist Party, I believe, in the Yale Political Union. Right, right, yeah. And so, like, she and I were we were having lunch one day, and she said, "Oh, I think that you would love." this uh this thing i just read and so she emailed me the link um but you know she and i stayed in touch after she went back to yale and and uh she invited me up to they did a debate and um not independence hall but uh gosh i can never remember what's what's the building opposite independence hall in philadelphia uh, yeah carpenter yeah <sighs> i can't remember i can't remember yes wherever Wherever it was that the uh, right. that the first congresses met, okay. um, they had a debate there one one September night, and so she invited me up, and it was amazing. But what was really amazing was was sitting in this room of people my age, and you know, by this point, I was starting to I was starting to think like, 
okay, like I'm, I'm smarter than I'm giving myself credit for. Like I was starting to feel myself a little bit. And then I'm sitting in this room with, with, you know, these future rulers of the world. And I was just amazed at how, how, how well-versed they were, how thoroughly um, taken with this idea. And I don't know how many of them knew that they were, that they were, um, that they were expounding on the ideas of imaginative conservatism, but they were. And it was just such a, such a, an encouraging thing. It's crazy. Um, like there was one guy, he was a, he was an upper crust guy. His parents had a penthouse in Manhattan and he, the way he talked about, about the, the sublimity of just being able to look out over the New York skyline at night, just like the, the poetry in his language and, wow. and the, the idea that there's something beautiful and that that something beautiful is is inherently good because of its beauty um like it it really had an impact on me um sure and and so i say that to encourage you that that despite what the headlines say there are pockets of of resistance out there thanks uh, jeremy that's great good to hear and thank, I haven't thanked you yet for for writing for us too. So yeah, it's it's always my pleasure when I when I'm able to publish something in the imaginative conservative. Great. So great. you mentioned for us too, right? So you mentioned the Kirkian sense, and by that you were referring to Russell Kirk. Right. Um, give us a little. Give us a little. Uh, just I guess a biography of who Russell Kirk is and why he's such a a prominent figure, uh, particularly to the imaginative conservative. So he was born in 1918 in Michigan and born into absolute poverty. And he died in 1994, but he's most remembered for having written The Conservative Mind in 1953, which really changed the cultural and political landscape. Mm -hmm. I think we often forget how much the, the landscape did change in the 1950s because of Kirk. I mean, there never would have been in the 60s of Goldwater or Reagan in the 70s and the 80s without Kirk having kind of laid that foundation, which is odd because Kirk didn't mean to lay a political foundation, but it did find an expression in politics. Uh, it found an expression elsewhere as well, but certainly in politics. And so Kirk, it, this is the conservative mind was his dissertation originally and ended up selling well over a million copies. So really did make a, a dent in things and ended up being released in about seven different editions over time and has just had a huge impact on things. So Kirk is really the father of post-war conservatism yeah. in almost every way. And I think that's kind of universally acknowledged by the left and the right, that he's that figure. Uh, there's some other contenders for that. I mean, people like Robert Nisbet and Leo mm-hmm. Strauss, um, who obviously should have a very high place in that. But I think Kirk, really because of his conservative mind, was able to give voice to a number of different schools of thought that were all anti-leftist at the time in the 40s and the 50s. So did amazing things. Uh, Kirk was a family man. He was a father, had four daughters, didn't get married until he was in his mid 40s. Uh, but he was a bachelor up to that point. He was a world traveler. He wrote three best-selling novels. He, he was a, a he wrote horror stories. Stephen mm-hmm. King has acknowledged him as one of the most important horror writers of the 20th century, which okay. is just kind of wild. The guy yeah. who found conservatism uh, also wrote these these ghost stories, and some of them are pretty pretty scary, actually, uh, yeah. pretty tense. I love them, but they uh, when I was getting ready for my own work on Kirk, 
I would read one short story every morning before noon out on the deck <laughs> just because they were getting to me. Um, and I, I love horror, actually. I mean, good jump scare horror, not 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 cut them up or right. um, not the bloody stuff, but the good kind of contemplative horror. Yeah. But uh, the, those were really getting to me. So I had to read them only in the morning in the sunlight. <laughs> so uh, he can be really dark and yeah. it's an interesting kind of darkness. It's it's always intellectual and it's always profound. But you know, Kirk, I think, understood holiness and I think he understood darkness. Yeah. Uh, and there, there's an element in, the, in his writing that is deeply disturbing at times, but always, I think, in the end, very, very insightful. So uh, he, he's a man of many, many talents. He, he was uh, got the Medal of Freedom from Ronald Reagan. Uh, what You know, Jeremy, what I like most about him, and I, I got to talk about this in my own work on Kirk, but what I liked most about him was how charitable he was. Hmm. Uh, ended up, he made millions of dollars on his books, but gave most of it away hmm. and gave it to anybody uh, who really needed it. He, he didn't, Kirk didn't like banks. He didn't have an, a bank. He didn't have a bank account. I mean, he literally just kept his money yeah. Uh, in, yeah, like in jars, <laughs> which is wild. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, he helped anyone who was homeless. He helped women who were pregnant. Uh, out of wedlock, crisis pregnancy type situations. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they rebuilt a black school in Michigan. I mean, just anything you can imagine. Wow. The Kirks were involved charitably and hosted uh, literally tens of Vietnamese and Cambodians and Ethiopians. Uh, they had kind of a colony going in central Michigan there for a while for refugees yeah. from the, these places that were just burning to the ground at the time. So really, I mean, yeah, I could, I could keep talking about this, Jeremy, <laughs> but just uh, an amazing figure, someone I, I'm always proud to look up to yeah. and I find always inspiring. Yeah. I remember um, one of maybe the first essay I read of Kirk was uh, the age of sentiment or the age of sentiment. Oh, that's a great, yes. That, yeah, that one, that one really yeah. moved me. In fact, that was my first thing in the, the imaginative conservative was I was writing kind of a response to it. I, I titled it the oh, age of nice. indifference. I'll have to go back and look that up. Yeah. I, yeah, it, you know, to this day, it's one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of having written um, completely inspired by him because he just, he has a way of writing that's so captivating. And so yeah beautiful it, writer yeah just he he tells stories while also making points but the story like just amazing I, I i love reading russell kirk um yeah jeremy if i can just jump in on this sure uh, it one of the things i found so astounding about kirk was how much he actually did write uh not not just in terms of fiction and books but letters there were times he would write close to 300 letters a day uh, which is just yeah you can imagine what the postage bill was too yeah right, right. Free email uh, so you know, he just he, he was a master and I, I've been able to go through thousands of his papers and you never even find a typo he was so expert at typing and could type 110 to 120 words a minute you know that just just incredible had a photographic memory so you know really wow. an amazing writer wow would you would you go so far as to say that he was a genius I would yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't hesitate at that at all. I, I think uh, he was a genius. And one of my one of my favorite quotes about him was from a, a guy who's kind of an eccentric, curmudgeonly guy named Paul Gottfried. Mm -hmm. But Paul Gottfried said about Kirk that watching Kirk on the typewriter was probably akin to watching Beethoven on the piano. 
Wow. That there, there was a, and Kirk could carry on. He could have a conversation going with his wife mm-hmm. while he's also typing an essay. <laughs> he could do both things at the same time. So yeah, yeah. Just sit there and, and multitask. God. So, you know, kind of like what at least I've read about Aquinas and the way Aquinas used to dictate mm-hmm. two or three books at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chesterton too, right? You hear all these things. Oh, is that about, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Chesterton. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, Chesterton. I've I've heard stories of him. He's he's carrying on a conversation with someone while he's you know writing by hand these these musings and these these essays oh, and poems wow. and everything. Um, yeah, I've often thought like, what would it be like to just to just have like two or three of these guys who can, can you imagine? Like, oof, I, I would yeah. I would probably just shrink into the corner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, but then again, they're both good guys, right? So they're probably, they'd probably do everything possible to make you feel comfortable. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I um, I don't know how well, how um, exposed you are to Chesterton. Um, I assume that you've probably read a few of his things at least. Yeah, but I don't know much about his life. I, I've definitely read Orthodoxy and, yeah. and uh, Everlasting Man and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of the classics. Um, yeah, I've I've only read just a little bit about uh, Chesterton the man. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite things. What is it? He uh, there were you know because he wrote for some newspaper there in London, maybe the Times. I can't remember, but he wrote right. for them for a while, and they they sent out this this prompt to all these different um, I guess op ed writers asking like, what's wrong with the world? And all the oh, writers, yeah. all the writers yeah. sent back these, you know, these long, long things. And this is back in, you know, the early, you know, the early 20th century, like right. I don't know when exactly, but he, uh, Chesterton, he sent back just the, a, a single reply to this, what is wrong with this, the world? This huge question. He just wrote, I am. And that I was, his am. I knew that. I knew that story. That's a yeah. great story. And like, that's just, that's quintessential Chesterton, right? Because it's like, it's so deep and it's so profound, but it's yeah. also just so tongue in cheek. Yes, absolutely. That's perfect. Yeah. I love it. I, I love that. I love that about him. And I love that about a writer when they can, when they can just kind of like, not take themselves too seriously, but at the same time, take themselves completely seriously. That's very serious. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a very whimsical way. Exactly. Great. So going back to Kurt, so he's he's known for these uh these 10 principles of conservatism. Um and with modern eyes reading these, it would be easy to read at least a few of these and ask yourself, like, well, what in the heck happened? How did we how did we get away from this? Because this actually sounds good. So what I thought what I thought I might do is maybe I could read through them and then I could just get your, you could just kind of give like a, uh, a bit of a explanation as to maybe what this looks like, what this means, sure. um, because so, they really are interesting. And there's really a lot of good material here uh, yeah. that I, I think that people can really get something from. So the first one, let's see if I can read my own handwriting here. Uh, the first one Conservatism believes that there exists an enduring moral order, that order is made for man and man for it. Human nature is a constant and moral truths are permanent. So what does he what does he mean there? What's what's he saying? 
Well, um, and he's going to say this in a variety of different ways. So Jeremy, just as a, a bit of background on this, Kirk loved these kind of lists. And he, he had one that were four points of conservatism, one that was six points of conservatism. And then, of course, towards the end of his life, he came up with the, the 10 points of conservatism because he was yeah. doing a series of lectures at the Heritage Foundation called the 10 something, something, something. Mm -hmm. uh, he did a whole series of these. So that was a, a speech he gave at the at the Heritage Center, mm -hmm. uh, Heritage Foundation in Washington, DC. Yeah. So his argument is that ultimately there's a kind of natural law that we're all beholden to in this first point, uh, that we're all beholden to this and that unless we recognize this, we're gonna be disordered. We're going to be disordered as an individual and we're going to be disordered as uh, as a society so we have to understand these moral precepts the natural law that exists at a, a variety of different levels it's very similar to what c.s lewis was arguing in the abolition of man mm. uh, in fact i think kirk in many ways is probably taking this from lewis i would not be surprised yeah. uh, at all but that that's that moral foundation that he's trying to give us and of course kirk wants us to have something objective that you and I, no matter our backgrounds, even regardless of our age difference, uh, regardless of our backgrounds, you're a Texan. My wife's a Texan, by the way. Um, you know, whatever, <laughs> uh, whatever our backgrounds are, whatever our religions, you and I happen to have the same one, uh, yeah. uh, but they could have been different. And uh, all of those things were still tied together by these essential truths, no matter what the accidents of our existence are. So Kirk wanted to tie all of humanity together. Interesting. Yeah. And that's like, just right off the bat, you, it, you know, if you're a millennial or I think they're calling the generation after them Zoomers now, I don't know, I've mm -hmm. lost track, but if you're, and I am a millennial, so that shows yeah. where my head's at, but um, if you're, if you're I'm in one, <laughs> lucky you, yeah. um, uh, but if like, if you're in one of these younger, uh, one of these younger generations, you read that rule or you read that principle and you listen to your explanation of it. And immediately, like you're 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 prepped. You're kind of defensive because it's it like that's the sort of thing that offends the moral con the the modern consciousness now. Yes, like it, it does not go well with with my opinion, your opinion. Let's just part our own ways. No, yeah, it definitely demands a certain kind of discussion and disagreement. Yeah, yeah, but I I think that that's uh, like that one seems to kind of set the stage for everything else that comes after them. Like that's right. kind of the foundation. And so, Agreed. so the next one, uh, principle number two, the conservative adheres to custom convention and continuity. So what's that? What's all that? Yeah. So basically we believe in tradition, right? That there, there has to be something that we've been in that we've inherited and that we don't just scoff at what we've inherited from our grandparents and our great grandparents, but we take it seriously, mm -hmm. uh, that we take it seriously. And that doesn't mean we have to accept it, but we do have to take it seriously and we have to at least debate it. And if we reject it, we have to have good reasons for rejecting it. So Kirk was really opposed. And I, I think I think this would have sounded better in the 50s than it really does in the 21st century. But Kirk was really opposed to the abstraction of thought that was so prevalent with ideological thinking in his day and age, hmm. especially with the rise of fascism and communism. So Kirk's opponent wasn't subjectivity, it was objectivity, but Kirk had his own objectivity that was opposed to those kinds of objectivities because he was trying to show that they were based on abstractions, whereas his beliefs was based on history. History becomes 
our our book it becomes our way of knowing who and what we are it's the only real factual evidence we have about human existence not what i want to be true but what i know to be true yeah yeah and again modern ears hear that and they think like oh so you just want to go back to the time when when women were expected to just stay in the kitchen all day and you want to own slaves and blah blah like that's what people hear when they hear that sort of thing. What would you, what would you say to someone who brought up those sort of tired points? Well, you got to remember the first point too with the morality, right? right? So it, it, it's one thing to believe in custom and to accept what our ancestors gave us, but part of believing in that custom is being willing to disagree with it too. It doesn't say we have to accept it. There's still mm-hmm. a humane order to things. So something like, uh, and of course, Kirk's wife was a is still she's still very much alive Mm -hmm. um she's a force of nature you can't (laughs) imagine mrs kirk sitting around in the kitchen being just a normal housewife (laughs) um you know i mean my wife's a phd and she's an editor and (laughs) i I just can't imagine um barbara elliott it was winston elliott the founder of tic is still here yeah i i had one of my i had one of my characteristic uh oh no problem you got darker yeah, the, yeah. I had one of my characteristic tech outages, but we're still here. Okay, should I keep talking? Or yeah, please do. Okay. So uh, I I know of very few conservative women who would fit in any way that stereotype, and certainly there's no one who's going to believe in reestablishing slavery by any means. So I, I think you know we Jeremy this one of the things that Kirk believed strongly was that every generation gets to respond to what comes before we can either accept it and pass it on we can reject it or we can reform it and something like slavery has no possibility of being reformed it's just it's an evil it's an affront to human dignity and so you have to be able to balance those things as well so there's there's the voice of reason as well as the voice of kind of sternness that goes into all of this yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's one thing that stuck out to me early as I was learning about Russell Kirk and, and Edmund Burke forum and, and just seeing the, the, the golden thread that ties all of these people together from again, Kirk, T.S. Eliot, uh, you can make an argument for guys like Solzhenitsyn, Vaclav sure. Haval, and, but then you also said like Plato and all these guys, this is long. Jeremy, I, I don't know if you can hear me. You're cutting out. Yeah, I, I I can hear you, and I am cutting out uh, a little bit. But can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I, I can, but you're kind of yes, I can hear you. Okay, I'm going to make another switch. All right, I'm I switched microphones, so maybe that'll help. Um, but yeah, that was one of the things that amazed me about uh, about imaginative conservatism and just this idea is how utterly humane it is um you know one of my one of my favorite lines from Solzhenitsyn uh from his Harvard address is when he's talking about how it's time to stop focusing on our human rights and to start focusing on our humane obligations um that was something that always stuck with me Uh, I thought that was a beautiful line and just again the idea of humane obligations well what do you mean like what does that mean but then you you dig into it and you're like oh that actually that sounds pretty good uh if you ask me um so moving on to the next point 
conservatives believe in what may be called the principle of prescription. Um, now this one, I actually had to understand it a little bit better myself. So what is the principle of prescription? Right. Prescription is just like we think of with medicine uh, and getting a prescription that is the doctor writes this down. And so this is another kind of just governed by abstraction. We have to be able to understand what the prescription is, meaning we have to have the evidence in order to go forth and have the medicine to correct what was wrong. And that can really only happen by understanding reality, not by wishing something to be true. So it's another way of saying this thing can be proven to be true, or at least we have a good chance of understanding this to be the proper answer to the question that we're asking. So we actually do have to prescribe to understand what a thing is and to combat it. Okay. That makes sense. I like that. It's just, it's very, it's very clean. It's very simple. I like that. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's from Burke originally. That is was it? One of Burke's great statements that we must govern by custom and prescription. Oh yeah. Interesting. Well then we might, uh, we might. Kirk is taking yeah, and we may, I'm glad you brought up Burke because we may, we may circle back to him because I, I think that sure. any, any conversation along these lines is, is a bit incomplete without talking about Edmund Burke as well. Um, he's so, one of the greats. Question. He, and, and, you know, I, I, must, I must confess, I, everything I know about Burke, I've, I've learned through reading other people about Burke. I've never, I've never experienced the, the man's work firsthand. Um, well, I'm jealous. I'm jealous <laughs> that you read it for the first time. I would love to be able to read him for the first time. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Reflection on the Revolution in France. It's on my bookshelf, and it's it's on my list. I would think, especially with your interest in psychology and psychiatry, I would think that it would be really interesting because okay. it deals so much with the nature of man. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, but that that bumps it up a few spots in my reading list. Yeah. So you put it that way. Good, good. I encourage that. <laughs> um, next principle is uh, conservatives are gar- are guided by the principle of prudence. Explain. Yeah, that's that's what we were talking about earlier. Prudence that uh, is defined, of course, as by by traditionally is defined as one of the great virtues and it is the ability to discern good from evil and so kirk is suggesting that as we approach things we must have a moral responsibility so going back to point number one we must have a moral responsibility that goes into that and that that's how we judge these things so prudence means we don't just jump in wherever because we have the possibility of fixing things we jump in because we do have the possibility of fixing those things and that that is the argument from prudence that we're able to discern good from evil and actually make something out of this so it would be it would be wonderful if we could pass legislation to end poverty but it would be impossible that would not be the politics of prudence Politics of prudence would be to pass legislation that may ease poverty, but not get rid of it. That's a fool's errand to try and just abolish it completely. And in doing so, by acting imprudently, will create disasters. Yeah. 
yeah, a few things come immediately to mind when you say such things. Um, interesting. So, so we're not living in a very prudent time, are we? No, no. But you know, we're not living. We're living in a weird time too, because and I, I was reminding my students of this today. My students, outside of watching maybe the Supreme Court, have never seen a civilized discussion in the public sphere. Uh, you, you think about I mean, whatever you thought of the, the political figures of the last of the last campaigns, the last two campaigns, uh, they were vitriolic, they were nasty, they were brutal to one another. In Congress, they've they've become these Manichaeans where it's one side against the other. There's no middle ground at all, and there's no real discussion because they're yelling at each other. And which is one of my complaints about Twitter as well. Twitter can devolve into that very, very quickly. Social media can. But so my students, these 18-year-olds, have never really seen civilized discussion. They've only seen vitriolic discussion. Hmm. And I, I think that's the kind of thing Kirk would have been horrified, absolutely horrified by. And it's much worse than when he died in 94. Yeah. You know, in, the, in the 80s, uh, Ronald Reagan met with Tip O'Neill, even though they were great political opponents, they met together all the time to work through compromises and get things done. And that's just not, that's not the norm now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've, you know, I used to work in public policy. I think I mentioned that uh, earlier. And um, yeah, it like you would being in that environment, you know, you would occasionally have the opportunity to, to talk to um to politicians either at the state level or maybe even at the national level and you would hear you know if, if they'd been in the game long enough you would hear them talk about how particularly the national level guys you would hear them talk about how over the weekend uh they would they would carpool with the other representatives from their from their district they would carpool home with them oh yeah even though like one was a democrat one was a republican Right. They, they were buds. They were they were bros. They were friends, even though like professionally, they didn't see eye to eye. But personally, they still saw the humanity in oh, one yeah. another. Absolutely. Yeah. And now now you think like, you know, you can't even get these people in the same room to do their job, much less get them to voluntarily travel somewhere together and enjoy that time. Um, yeah, it's it truly scary. It, it really is. And it's, it's um, yeah, I think scary is the right word because it, it doesn't seem to be reversing itself. It seems to only be accelerating. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and spirit. Yeah. It's, I, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. Um, next principle. Uh, conservatives pay attention to the principle of variety. Now I read about this one. And it sounded to me like it's describing a, a sort of diversity and that I, I make that point. Maybe I'm wrong. And if I am, please correct me. But if that's right, that seems odd because I've always been told that conservatives are not interested in any kind of diversity. So what is this principle of variety? So Kirk takes this from a, a great, fascinating statesman of the early American Republic by the name of John Randolph of Roanoke. And the idea is, and it, it actually, the larger phrase of it is the proliferating principle of variety. And the idea is very, very Christian humanist and fits beautifully into Christian theology. It's that as bearers of the Imago Dei, each one that is of the image of Christ, each one of us 
is made in the infinite image of Christ, but we are made as finite beings never to be repeated. Mm-hmm. So John Paul II would say that each person is an unrepeatable center of dignity and freedom. And that's the exact same thing that Kirk is saying. He's saying there's true diversity in the human person. And yes, it is diversity in the way that the politicos use it, but it's much deeper than that because yeah. it's really, it's about a diversity of soul not just of skin color or whatever it it's much much deeper than that it argues that every one of us is born into a certain time in a certain place to a certain parentage with a certain religion to a certain language to a certain culture all of these things that shape who and what we are and yet even though we're being shaped by our environment at the core we are individual never to be repeated again that's what kirk is really getting at with that it's beautiful. It's actually one of my my favorite things that Kirk argued. Yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that that you hear it and you think that is beautiful, and then you immediately, I immediately get kind of frustrated because it's like, why can't why can't people talk about that? Why can't people make these points? Why can't we? What's so difficult about sure about that? Like it's just it's so. It's so frustrating sometimes that we've that we've gotten so far away from these these beautiful humane ideas, and now it's just all about tax cuts and and right. war. That's it. Um, Yelling. Yeah. Um, the next one: conservatives are chastened by the principle of imperfectibility. What what is what are we talking about here? Yeah, that takes us back to that point that we were talking about with we could ease poverty, but not eliminate poverty. So the idea that we could ever perfect human nature, Kirk says, this point is basically saying, well, no, we're also really flawed and we're encumbered by original sin. So don't don't imagine that just because we have this beautiful side that we can overcome our imperfect side as well. The human human ability, the human understanding of the humane person is always recognizing both the human person's greatness and their weakness at the same time. So be beautiful, promote beauty, but don't get carried away with thinking that beauty will actually save the entire world. It will in terms of Christ, but not in terms of us employing our will to make it happen. Yeah. So then you, so so that may be where where Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn get it wrong. That beauty beauty of itself is not going to save the world. It, it it can certainly make the world better, but mm-hmm. it won't save the world unless you're talking about Jesus. Sure. And okay. if Jesus is the highest point of beauty, then yes, but but not not beyond that. Yeah. Not <laughs> if it's not if it's measured by the human will. Sure. That makes sense. Um. Next point, uh, conservatives are persuaded. Uh, pers- like I said, I can't read my own handwriting. Yeah, so. that's okay. <laughs> uh, conservatives are, are persuaded that freedom and property are closely linked. Yeah, this, this goes back to the founding for Kirk. Uh, the founders, the founding fathers, they said life, liberty, and, and property or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness we're basically saying that we have the right to ownership of ourself. And that that's a huge point of Kirk's that unless we have property rights, which Kirk thinks of as kind of us 
being able to own ourselves. Unless we have that, we really aren't moral agents. And to be moral agents, we have to have control over our own faculties and take responsibility. So uh, Kirk does mean, in a sense, that I own land, but it's more important that I own myself. So mm. the property right is the same thing as the individual natural right to life. Wow. Kirk. I've, I've never, so cards on the table, every time I read that point, maybe it's just because I'm so cynical when it comes to modern politics, but I read that and I just think like, oh yeah, he's talking about private property, move on, I get it. Um, right, it's easy to have that kind of libertarian take on it, but I yeah. think it at a more moral level. Yeah, and I've, I've never just, I've never been able to grasp it at that moral level, but hearing you put it that way, um, it changes it for me. I, I like, I like the idea that it goes beneath, it goes deeper than just what you own. It goes down to the, to the individual level, to the soul level. Right. Right. Yeah. And again, taking responsibility for the good and the bad. Yeah. Capable of doing. Yeah. It, was it, I've always seen this attributed to Russ, this quote attributed to Russell Kirk, but then I was corrected once and said that he actually took it from someone else. He, I, I don't remember, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something to the effect of, uh, of brighten the corner that you're in or brighten right. something to that effect the corner where you find yourself. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. 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 That, um, that, that kind of, that stands out to me. That's always been my, yeah. my perspective. He took that from an Italian priest and I can't remember the, the priest's name right now, but they, it was, there's an order that that's their motto. And Kirk was really taken with that order, but I, I can't remember what it is right now. I've got it somewhere in the book, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's definitely not on the tip of my tongue. I, I like it. Uh, I like it a lot. Um, let's see here. Uh, conservatives uphold, uh, uphold voluntary community quite as they oppose involuntary collectivism. Right. So th this is basically arguing that, that man, I mean, men and women, that man is meant to live in community. But it's so easy for us to have a kind of slippage and argue we should only have community. Kirk is saying that, no, our, our communities need to be voluntary and we need to make sure that we're not in some kind of collectivist mode where we lose our individuality within the community. Rather, the community should sharpen our individuality and also temper our, our negative side as well. So it tempers our sinful side, but encourages our excellences. Huh. I like it. I, I yeah, I beautiful point on the on Kirk's part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, just reading through these, hearing about community, hearing about, about like the, the, the deeper and the finer points of being a human. It, this is how, this is, this is how it should be. I, I just, I don't understand how we could have gotten so far away from, from such, not even just, not even a beautiful way of life, but just such a simple and in ways obvious way of life. It just, it, it astounds me. I'm, I'm speechless at, at what we've become. Um, next point, uh, conservatives perceive the need of prudence, restraints upon power and upon human passions. 
Right, right. So uh, this is you know, Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power tends to corrupt. Absolutely. This is Kirk's way of stating that, that we have to be very careful about the kind of power that we're willing to bestow upon any individual. Yeah. So we have to be very careful. And that's the prudence, right? We, we know what we can do. We know what we shouldn't do. We know what's good. We know what's evil. And we recognize that even when we find a great person. So for Kirk, Ronald Reagan was kind of the great hero of his of his later days, but you would never make Ronald Reagan Caesar. He's a great president, but you don't go beyond that. You recognize that even within his greatness, there are limitations. So we don't wish for things to be greater than they are. We accept them for what they are. Reagan is a person. Reagan has greatnesses, but he has his faults as well. So we don't empower any individual to be able to have absolute control over any one thing. Hmm. So I take it then that that Kirk was not a monarchist. No, no, he, he's an old he's an old school small R Republican. Yeah, he definitely believed in the republic. Uh, wrote a number of books in the fifties about the nature of republics. And hmm. yeah, he, he's no no monarchist. <laughs> Though you know, had he been say Spanish or Latin, uh, maybe a Latin American, he may have felt differently. But certainly coming out of the American Anglo-Saxon tradition, uh, he believed that very strongly what happened in Philadelphia with the creation of the Republic was what should happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, myself, I, I consider myself at least in theory, I maybe not in practice. I don't think it works anymore, but in theory, I like the idea of monarchy. And so I consider myself a theoretical monarchist, at least, at least. um, You and Tolkien. Tolkien. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, um, I figure like if nothing else, I figure that he and I can get together at the party and talk about it if no one else wants to. Uh, do Do you think that uh, that monarchy and conservatism? Do you think that they are at odds in in any significant way? Well, again, I think Kirk's right that coming out of the American tradition, we tend to be more Republican. But but certainly, I think in Latin American countries and in Spanish-speaking countries overall, there's a much greater confluence between monarchism and conservatism than yeah. there is here. I, I think you're just, it, it's fun to think about in a case like America, but uh, you're never going to get anywhere as a monarchist, even though we essentially have a kind of serial monarchy with our presidents, an yeah. elected serial monarchy. Don't we just? Yeah. Um, final point, uh, and then we're going to wrap up because there are a few things, three other things I want to try to get to, and I, I'm trying to be conscious of time. So, final point: uh, the thinking conservative, and I like the way that this this principle is worded. Thinking, thinking conservative. conservative, I have it underlined. Uh, thinking conservative understands that permanence and change must be recognized and reconciled in a vigorous society. Right, right. So basically the conservative is not opposed to everything. The conservative comes up with solutions as well, but does so in in a fashion that's commensurate with conservative principles. So again, how would we, if we were conservatives and we wanted to solve the issue of poverty, what would we do? We're never going to solve it completely. We can only ease it. So what kinds of things would a conservative do to ease poverty? Maybe they might encourage free enterprise in this area, or they might encourage the formation of voluntary communities, which can then help the homeless in their region. So there are a number of things that the conservative can do. And he doesn't just say, well, of course, we don't want 
to help the poor. That's socialism. He says, well, no, let's help the poor, but let's figure out how to do this in a fashion that works well with our own conservative principles. So if I just said that private property is the most important aspect to who and what we are, well, how do I reconcile that with trying to solve poverty? And there are various ways that that can be done. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to walk through that because like I say, yeah, I've, absolutely. at this point, I've only been left to my own my own intellect to make sense of all that. And there were, there were a few points that I've always been fuzzy on. So sure. Well, I hope that helps. It, it I've, helps. I've been thinking about this stuff more than I probably should. So. Well, you know, other people have not been thinking about it as much as they probably should. So maybe that's just, maybe we balance out at some it, point. It's the balance. Exactly. Right, the weirdo. Yes. <laughs> oh, so there are a couple other things. And I, there are a couple other, I guess, big questions that I want to, to talk to you about and, and, and maybe bigger than they than they should be. But um, what is the good life? Oh well, <laughs> for Kirk, um, for you, for Kirk, for anyone. Yeah, the, I, I think the good life is living according to moral precepts. That is, doing what you're meant to do. God created you, Jeremy, for a specific purpose of purposes. And I think the good life is pursuing that and trying to figure out how that fits in with the community around you. So it's one thing that you're excellent at this or that. It's another thing that your excellence makes the community better as well. And I think for Kirk, the good life means that we have to be able to work those things together. We have to be able to do what we're truly good at but we do it within the context of what the needs of the community are. And that, so we find a kind of moral satisfaction, not just that, oh, I'm great at this and I can do, and we should be proud of what we can do. That's good. We should be honest about it, but it also has to be not just for self, but for community as well. And that, that is really the good life to live morally right, rightly, and to live according to our moral precepts, but to do so in a way that is good for all of society, that is for the common good, for, for the Republic, the race publica, not just for ourselves. I like that. I like that. What, what is good in life? Yeah, for Kirk, uh, I think what's good in life is the ability to help one another. I think that was probably one of the most important things that he believed that we should not be restrained by government in helping one another. And one of the problems, for example, with something like taxes is once we're taxed too heavily, we're not left over with money to be charitable. And uh, that means that we're in a very sticky situation because we're called on for the good life to be charitable, but the federal government has mechanized our charity, has not allowed us to actually be charitable. It has threatened us with imprisonment and all kinds of fines and various retribution, rather than us actually being able to serve the good, we have to serve the general good. And that's different from what Kirk is saying when we look at the common good. Yeah. What are you optimistic about? Oh, well, the fact that you and I can have this conversation, I'm optimistic about, I think it's great. Um, I'm also, I'm, I'm reminded many times, especially when I'm speaking to larger audiences, that I don't have to worry, I can say almost anything I want, and I don't have to worry about my room being stormed by the ATF or the FBI. Um, yeah. We still have freedom of speech in this country, and it's getting narrower and narrower, but the reason it's getting narrower is because people are being idiots about it. 
Um, you get the press that's not really digging deeply into things and you get social media, which makes things so hostile to one another. Yeah. But we still, I can still say anything I want on Twitter for the most part. I mean, Twitter could ban me, but I could say mostly true things on Twitter. I could use Facebook as a way to promote the truth. And granted, I'm competing with a thousand others who are using it to promote some political propaganda, but I can still speak the truth. And I think as long, and, and this is very Jeffersonian on my part, but I think as long as we're able to speak the truth, we have a responsibility to do so. And we can only, we do the right thing. We speak the truth and we pray that there's an audience to listen to it. I'm optimistic about that. I think that that's, I think that's worthy of optimism. Um, and I hope that more people are optimistic about that sort of thing too. Uh, there's not, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot to be optimistic about right now. Well, no, it's a dark time. We definitely live in a, an extraordinarily chaotic time mm -hmm. uh, and it is dark. And I think things are going to continue to be dark for a while, but you know, I mean, if, if we actually believe what Kirk believed, if we believe that there are these permanent things and there are these truths, those things are always there, no matter how much we mess them up or hide them or forget them or neglect them or distort them. Uh, a true thing is always true. It's always there. And it just has to be remembered. And I yeah. think that's part of the, our conversation now for an hour has been remembering good things. Right? And I, I think that's, and, and we have the ability to do this, to talk about this. We yeah. could have made this a five minute dialogue, but we made it an hour dialogue. We've done something to actually talk to one another. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And, you, and it's because of you, Jeremy. I mean, you, facil you facilitated this. Well, it's, it's it's my pleasure. I love conversations like these. And so I'm going to end. That would be a great note to end on, but I want to end on the most important question that I'm going to ask you. Okay. Ready for this. <clears throat> As a man of, of some Tolkien scholarship yourself, yeah. what happened to the Entwives? Oh. <laughs> okay, I was not expecting that. <laughs> um, I, I am not sure. I think that maybe... They were lost when Beleriand was lost and Middle-earth was remade after the Second Age. Uh, I, but I'm not sure because Tolkien says that they were actually tilling the fields of the West, not in the East. So I are in the, um, excuse me, in the East, not in the West. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure. Do you, do you have a theory? I, so I'm still putting mine together. Um, my theory, and I, I'm terrible with, with Middle-earth geography, but my theory is that they... They broke apart from Fangorn, they went across the Anduin, and then as, as Sauron was taking the east side of the Anduin, they got caught in the shuffle, and I think that they probably got destroyed in one way or another. Dagger ladder, yeah, right. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and um, what, what do they call it in the books? They call it, uh, what, the Brownlands, I believe? Right. Yeah, right. I believe, uh, that's my theory, that's my working that's theory. Excellent theory. That's uh, an excellent one. That's well, Brad, I... I really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'd love to have you on again sometime because there's Anytime, just many more questions that I want to ask you about all sorts of things. Um, where can people find you? Well, I, so weekly I write for theimaginativeconservative.org. It's all one word, theimaginativeconservative.org. Uh, and then, you know, I, I do a lot with Tom Woods, Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. And so those are probably the two best places to find me. Uh, either with Winston Elliott's The Imaginative Conservative or with Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom. And I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook more yeah. than I should be. So, <laughs> yeah. We all are. 
Well, I, I appreciate your time. I really enjoyed this and I look forward to having you back on and talking some more. Me too. This has been really nice. It was a great pleasure and honor. So thank you, Jeremy. Thanks a lot, Brad.